0: Would you keep a finger here in Isaiah 61 and turn with me, if you can, to Luke chapter 4. Turn to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. And we're going to read, beginning in verse 16. I want you to see how important... Isaiah 61 is to Jesus and to the story of the New Testament. So we're going to start here in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, Jesus went to church, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus announces his ministry, the launch of his ministry at the beginning of Luke, and he announces his identity, who he is. This has been fulfilled this day by quoting Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. We go to some of the other gospels. Isaiah 61 features hugely there as well. In Matthew chapter 5, the the very first sermon that Jesus gives, the the first glimpse we get at the message that He went all over the place proclaiming. It says in in Matthew 1-4 that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But what was that? So He gathers this crowd together, and we see this in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember how it starts? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus' sermon, his first sermon, the first glimpse we get at this, begins with a rephrasing and a development of Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. Blessed are the poor, and blessed are those who mourn. So Jesus knew our passage, Isaiah 61, 1 to 4, very well. He had contemplated it deeply, and he had applied it to himself and to his followers. So, now go back to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 4, is a vision of who Christ is, what the gospel is going to be, and what are going to be the results of Jesus and his work on his followers. It is an outline of the, what was the hope of Israel, the hope of Isaiah, the hope of his first readers, as well as an outline of what is our hope today. What we, who Jesus is and what we want him to do in our lives so let's just begin right at the beginning in verse 1 with uh, characteristics of who the Christ is. Now I say the Christ, we call him Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament they would have called him the Christ because they didn't know his name. They didn't know who he was specifically. Who was going to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One? So characteristics of the Christ. The first is here in, verses, in verse 1 that the Christ is going to come with kingly power from God. We see this right away, right? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Is that a unique thing? It's actually a pretty unique thing. Before we talk about how unique it is, let me just point out a detail here. Look at that phrase, the Lord God. You notice anything weird about it? Right, so it's a capitalization is kind of weird there, right? So typically we see the word Lord is sometimes all caps, like cap L, cap O, cap R, cap E, cap D. That, that is, uh, signifies that it's the special name of God, what, what you may have heard him refer to as Yahweh or Jehovah. It's this, this, his personal name that he reveals to Moses back at the beginning of Exodus where he says, I am who I am, that's Yahweh. And out of reverence for that, most translators of the Bible don't translate Yahweh as Yahweh, but they translate it as Lord, but in all caps so that we know it's different from regular Lords. Well here, it's actually the the actual word Lord and then the word Yahweh, and so they translate Yahweh as God with all caps. And the point of this, whenever this appears, is to say this is the Yahweh who is the sovereign Lord. So this is a designation of God that points to his absolute lordship we call his sovereignty his his rule that that everything that he wants gets done so this is the spirit of the great sovereign who has come upon this person the the anointed one Now, Jesus is not the first person upon whom the Spirit of God comes in fact throughout the Old Testament it's, uh, the stories of the Old Testament are often exceptional stories and incredible stories. And so we see the Spirit of God coming upon people kind of regularly. But it's always an extraordinary moment. Whenever the Spirit comes upon somebody, He comes upon them, they have ex- exceptional strength or wisdom, they get an exceptional message. You know, think of uh, Samson, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he, he defeats all God's enemies and he rips you know, gates out of the ground and carries them up hills. Think of Elijah doing extraordinary things all with the Spirit of God coming upon them. So the Spirit of God will come upon somebody for in order to accomplish a God's will directly and immediately. Let me say that again. Like the, God is always accomplishing His will, right? But He's accomplishing it quietly and slowly. He's accomplishing His will in our lives. He's accomplishing His will all over the place, but quietly and slowly. But once in a while... God, the Spirit of God, comes on somebody so that God accomplishes His will directly. He's going to do it very clearly and immediately. It's going to happen right now. Now, what happened to people throughout the Old Testament occasionally is going to define this person. See the difference? The Spirit of the Lord would come upon Elijah and he'd do something crazy. Right? The Spirit of the Lord would come on Samson and he would do something amazing. And then the Spirit of the Lord would leave him, and he'd be back to being his regular schlub self, right? But the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon this person. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says that the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him. It's going to rest upon him. Which means that the sovereign God is going to accomplish exactly, precisely his will directly and immediately, all the time, through this person, through the Christ. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That word anointed is in the Hebrew, it's, it's Messiah. He'd messiahed me. He'd made me the set-apart one. He made me this special anointed person. Now here's another, there's going to be several of these sort of like little interesting details, little hyperlinks that we don't really see, but the first readers would have seen. The only other place in the Old Testament that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon somebody and there's an anointing is with the kings, with Saul and with David. And so the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him and this anointing is marking him off as the great king, God's great king who has been sent to do this great work. And what is that great work? This is going to be an important sort of image for our contemplation this morning. The great work of God that we have been anticipating and hoping for since Genesis 1. The thing that we've been praying for ever since Eve and and Abel and Seth. That God would do something to get us back in. To get us back in to fellowship with God. to Get us back into the the goodness of God. To get us back into a life of the Spirit. And to a renewal of all things and a renewal of our humanity as well. We want to get in. And this one, on whom is the Spirit of God, who is God's anointed one, is going to get us back in. So we know that this person is Jesus. Jesus announces himself quoting this. Let me just ask you at this point. Do you know that the Spirit of God is on Jesus? That the Spirit of God is on Jesus. That, here's what that means. That what Jesus can do for you is what matters. Because he has the Spirit of God. He can directly and immediately, and wants to directly and immediately, do God's will in your life. What Jesus can do for us is what matters. He is the one who can bring us back in. He can bring us back into the will of God and, and back into the work of God. Doesn't that sound, does that sound good? Right? If, we, if we knew that the Spirit of the Lord God rested on Jesus all the time, we would turn ourselves over to Him all the time. What do you think happened when Jesus announced this to, the, to His uh, home church? Right? He came back from His mission trip and He had a great announcement. Here's some slides. And also, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach. You know what they did? What do they do? They said, wow, fantastic. Let's call up the praise band and get things, you know, let's really, let's have a big potluck. We're going we're gonna to kill the fatted calf. We're going to. What do they do? They said, we're going to kill you, <laughs> Jesus. That's what they did. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And it's a complicated thing to have come into your life, somebody upon whom there's the Spirit of the Lord. So this is a real question. I don't want you to be like, well, I mean, I'm at church. I mean, yeah, I get it that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. This is really an invitation for us to consider the identity of the Christ and our, the nature of our relationship with Him. That the Spirit of God is on Jesus. And, and really, until we go to Him, we're outside. And everything in our life that is kept from Jesus is, is on the outside of what God wants and what God is at work doing. And so until we go with him, we are on the outside. So we're introduced to the Christ. We're also introduced to uh, his work. So the second thing we see is the characteristics of the work of the Christ to come, who we know to be Jesus. And that work is that he's going to preach good news and he's going to give gifts. He's going to preach good news and he's going to give gifts. I bet if you had asked... a a group of uh, young Jewish boys from around this time or any time up till when Jesus comes, what is it that you're most excited about the Messiah doing? They would, none of them have said, preach. (laughs) We're so excited to hear him preach. How excited are you to hear preaching? (laughs) Don't answer that. Jesus is going to come. The Messiah is going to... The Lord has anointed him. The Spirit of God is upon him. And what's he going to do? He's going to show up. He's going to preach? How many people, when Jesus is preaching, how many people are like, this is nice. I mean, he's a better preacher than the rabbis. He's a better preacher than the synagogue teachers. But I wish he'd hurry up and get to the part where we get to kill all the Romans and redistribute the gold. Right? That's what Messiah is supposed to do. I think it's really interesting how often... This is like a persistent aspiration of God's people. We just want, God, we're so thankful for forgiving our sins. We just want you to kill all those people and give us the gold. right? That if, we could just, if we could just get rid of those people, we would get inside. We'd be back in the good place. If we could just redistribute some of Bezos' fortune, then we would have all the good things that we aspire to. But that's not what the Messiah came doing. The Messiah came bringing good news. Preaching good news. This is the word for, in the New Testament, preaching the gospel. He came proclaiming. He came preaching. Well, that, can be, that could be, except for like church people are kind of like, yeah, yeah, this is what it says. This can be kind of disappointing. Is he just talking? Is it just words? But think for a second. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon him. And so, his words are the words of God. And what do we know from Genesis chapter 1 happens when God speaks? And God said, let there be light and... there it was. Right? God said, well maybe light's easy to make, I don't know. God says, let there be animals. Boom, there's animals. Stars. Boom, there's stars. Right? So when Jesus comes and He says, you're free, you're free indeed. Right? When He says live... He says you have life, life abundantly. When he says you're blessed, Paul says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What he says happens. Because his is the word of God. Because his is the word of the, of the king who is filled with the spirit of God. Right? When kings say stuff, when they're like, oh, this could be warmed up. It, it's warmed up, right? When they're saying, you know what, I'm tired. Th- that person's gone, He's the great king with the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So when he comes proclaiming and preaching, it happens. This is really good news. This is a great thing. The Messiah comes with a message. And the message is going to be full of gifts. He has come, verse 1 here, to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. The message of the Christ is full of gifts. And who are these gifts for? they for the people on the bottom. they for the people who are broken. they for the people who are stuck. The the people who have been misused. That's who this is for. This is good news for those people. This is not good news for people who've got it all and would also like to not burn in hell. This is good news for the poor. Jesus calls these people the uh, spiritually poor. Right? He says, Blessed are the right? first sermon, first words. Happy. Good news for the poor in spirit. The spiritually poor. The people who know they, they don't have it in them and they're not going to get it done. And blessed are those who mourn. This is typically throughout history in most cultures, most times, most places. This is the literal poor who more often tend to endure more literal losing. They have less access to health care, less access to justice resources, they have less access to good things. They endure more literal losing, they endure more literal incarceration. But Jesus takes this and he he expands it and he invites everybody who is lost, stuck, broken part, broken hearted, everybody who knows that they need God. Everyone who knows that I'm outside and there's God and he I want to be with him. I want to be in there with him. Everybody who knows that. This is for them. He says in Verse 2, this is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. It's talking about a, a great reversal that, that Jesus the Christ is going to bring. So now all of those people who were outside of the world's good, outside of those opportunities, outside of the establishment and the power, are going to be brought into what God himself is doing. And all of those people who presume to say, we're on the inside, we know what God's doing, they're kicked out. Look at verse 3. He goes on to talk about these gifts. He says that the, the Christ is going to come and going to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. I love these images. Beautiful headdress, oil of gladness, the garment of praise, Think about, uh, think about stories in the Bible where garments feature significantly, right? The, uh, the many-colored robe of Joseph. The prodigal son coming home and, 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 the, and the father says, get my finest robes and clothe him. Or in Psalm 23, one of the high points of the psalm is when, when our head is anointed with oil. So these are, these are images, these are visions of, of love, of being restored, and of being elevated. Of getting what your heart desires in this relationship with God, It's a really interesting kind of textual detail I want to draw our attention to because it, it'll help us understand the gospel and the story of Isaiah as well. That, that word there, beautiful headdress, that's kind of a strange word, right? Beautiful headdress. It, it actually, the only other place in the Old Testament that appears outside of this chapter is in Isaiah chapter 3. So the very beginning of Isaiah, which you'll remember was a lot about judgment, about God's people's misbehavior. In Isaiah chapter 3, it says that uh, the daughters of Zion are clothing themselves in all of this finery and beauty and and creams. and, and And they're covering up with all of this appearance all sorts of injustice and wrongdoing. And so there, Isaiah is promising that all of that is going to be taken from you. You pretend to be an insider, you pretend to have God's favor and blessing on you, you don't. And it's all going to be taken away. And here, those who are poor, who are on the outside, who are just hoping in God, they get it all back. In fact, this, this commentator, I want to read you what he said because it was really helpful for me. He says that the whole book of Isaiah is about the shame and grief we bring on ourselves by trying to make ourselves high and mighty. The book of Isaiah is about the shame and grief we bring on ourselves by trying to make ourselves high and mighty, trying to pretend, trying to get into the world's goods, to get into that good life through the world's ways for ourselves. And then the book of Isaiah, he says, is about the grace of God, who though we've reduced ourselves to sackcloth and ashes, God's grace wishes to clothe us in finery and seat us beside himself. All in that little word, beautiful headdresses. What you were pretending to wear, what you were pretending to do for yourself is gone, and now God gives you the real thing. Now you're brought in. And when we when we turn to the gospel stories of Jesus, we see that Jesus' life, his ministry was defined by this reversal that the outsiders were brought in, and the insiders are He's saying, get out of here until you become like a, a little child, until you become poor in spirit. If you're not sick, why are we talking? I'm here for the sick, not for those who think that they're well. So he does this great reversal. He brings these outsiders in. And, and, and this poses a question for all of the later readers of Isaiah as well. Just as we need to, we need to think about, Is this, do I recognize that the Spirit of the Lord is on Jesus? Not on any of the bigwigs of the world. Not on any of the teachers of the world. It's on Jesus. So I should follow Him, right? This asks us another question, which is, are we... Are we the poor in spirit? Are we sad without him? Do you need Jesus? Or are you good? Are you good? How are you doing today? Good. Fine. Okay, good. All right. But Jesus is for those who are not doing great. Jesus is for those who are feeling like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I have no idea how I'm going to do it. I'm trying the world's ways. It's not working. I've got all the world's goods. They're not working. The inside, Jesus comes and he teaches us this, that the inside, where we want to go, is outside of where we are. The inside is outside of where we are. The inside of the world's ways and its preoccupations That is outside of the kingdom of God, and we want to get inside. We want to get with Jesus and what he's doing. And that's outside of where we are. So Jesus doesn't come with a sword. He doesn't come with bags of gold. He comes with words. But as we've already seen, his words create and they transform. And so we come to the last bit of our passage here, midway through verse 3. Let's begin reading here about the consequences of the work of the Christ. Is going to create communities of oh, wrong way. Communities of restoration. Let's pick up in verse three here. In some of the most beautiful and evocative language. That you see that that word that at the end of verse three. That's where we're picking up here. The result of all this is that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. I love these images. I wish we could just, like, talk about these for a super long time. But just grab this image, right? We, we live in a blessed area uh, geographically where we can imagine what a grove of oaks looks like. You know that uh, that little short loop behind the Calmarine, uh head the state forest headquarters here on 59. If you go back in there, there's a little short like half mile loop off to the left, and it's this like oak savanna or something like that. I don't think I don't know if we get to use the word savanna in Wisconsin, but I think that's what they call it. An oak savanna, and it's glorious. This grove of oak trees, and that's just a little bit of a snippet, a vision of what Isaiah is saying that is going to happen to God's people. This this great stable forest of trees. And again, this is pulling on an image from Isaiah chapter 1. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah prophesies to Israel. says that you're a bunch of dried out dead oak trees. And you're just good for getting burned. You're done. And here now, at the very end of Isaiah, through the work of God and the work of the Messiah, there's going to be a new grove of oak trees. The plantings of the Lord. right? The the plantings of the Lord. Did you notice that? This speaks to the purposeful work of God. That we exist as a consequence of His mercy and grace. We exist for Him. What is it that He has called us to Himself to do? So you've got this vision of these trees, right? This is us. Now what are we going to do? Verse 4 again. They shall build up the ancient ruins, raise up the former devastations, repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. What is this speaking about? This is... This is not talking about repairing falling architecture or or building church buildings. This is talking about restoring the worship that God's people enjoy together, about restoring the glory of God's people, which is restoring the community of God's people and the purpose for which God has called us. If you think about what's happening here, when the exiles come back from Babylon, we know from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that they get to work on two big build, physical building projects. They work on the walls of Jerusalem, and they work on trying to rehabilitate the temple, getting the foundation fixed up for the temple. Right? So those are kind of images of the identity of God's people. We want, we want to build up this wall so there's people inside, people outside, who we are, and we want to get the worship of God, the purpose of God's people, rekindled as well and this is what this is speaking of about restoring the identity and mission of god's people now the identity right? we're supposed to be jesus's people he's our messiah he's our christ what does that mean for our purpose there's a connection here i want you to see in verse one that the christ comes and he binds up the brokenhearted. And then in verse 4, those people who were the brokenhearted who have been bound up, what do they do? They go and they build up the ancient ruins. They build up the devastations. The Christ is going to come and he's going to go to the broken people and to the broken places and he is going to restore those people to God. He calls us and he calls us to be restorers as well. Jesus restores and we are to be restorers too. Jesus goes to the broken places, and we are to go to the broken places too. We are to be identified in that way with Jesus. His work is meant to continue in our work. In fact, there's this great moment, this little subtle thing that Luke does. Luke is the author of the Gospel according to Luke. He's also the gospel of the next book in that series called Acts. Luke and Acts. And at the beginning, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes. O Theophilus, he's writing this to a guy named Theophilus. In the last volume, I told you of all that Jesus began to teach and to do. You get that? So the entire Gospel of Luke is all what Jesus began to do. And the book of Acts, in which the physical Jesus almost never appears, is all that Jesus continues to do. But now through his church, through the apostles and through his people. Jesus' work continues in what we do. He's a restorer, we're restorers. Let me just ask you this, friends. This hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Am I inside? Right? Am I inside what God is doing? Don't you want to be inside what the Spirit of God is up to in this world? Do you feel like you're inside? I I felt just such fatigue in my spirit for the ways that I am tempted by the world and by what Christian religion can offer as well to substitute those things for following Jesus closely, for living inside the work that He wants to do. There's so many subtle things and subtle ways that we turn away from, from the broken places. You want to go back to the devastations? Mm -mm. We turn away from them in all of these subtle ways that allow us to get comfortable, but you're comfortable, but you're not inside. We're not inside. We're not with the Spirit of the Lord. I love this this vision here and the mashup of being oaks of righteousness, being this grove of oak trees with repairing, building, restoring. This, this grove of oak trees is what builds up and restores. I love this mashup of these images. So here's this, this image of the stable community of people who have been set free and and it is our roots that repair it is our acorns that repair we are the stable community of set free people and our roots bring restoration and we grow they talk about we've got these euphemisms for talking about the bad things that happen in the world we talk about urban decay what's urban decay right broken up concrete blasted out windows it's not what it is talk about rural flight you know, we talk about boarded up homes or there's no kids around. That's, that's not what it is. Those are just shorthand ways of talking about the forces that erode relationships and destroy community. None of those things would happen if people trusted each other and knew each other and relied on each other. In every place, whether you want to talk about the, the burbs or the exurbs or the cities, Where world communities, every place has its relational vices, its relational devastations. And we exist. God has called us. Jesus Jesus comes, and He preaches His good news, and He sets free the captives, and He binds up the broken hearts, and then He says, go back in to the broken places. And we exist to restore hope to places that have been emptied out of hope. We exist to rekindle worship. A sense of the presence of God. And, and awe in who God is. Who out there knows how great our God is? This is our job. To create a sense of shalom. To reintroduce love into the relational ecosystems that we're a part of. And to be inside with God. To be inside the work of God in a world like this. Is going to mean that our work is Restoration is working with the broken things. You know, in the, in the evangelical tradition, we, t- we, we emphasize souls. Souls. Right? Saving souls. Souls need to be saved. But, but in this passage, it's only the Messiah who binds up the hearts of people. Right? That's, that's His work. And of course, we want to pray for souls, and we want to share the message of Jesus with them. But, but our primary work, according to this, is to work for communities of trust and mutual dependence and support. To build communities of trust, mutual dependence and support, rather than, of course, communities of mistrust or suspicion. Communities defined by radical independence and self-sufficiency. We want to create these communities that welcome people who need Jesus, the poor in spirit. And those who mourn, who welcome them and invite them. To use the images of the the acorn grove, or the, the oak grove, which I just love, this calls on us to grow deep, to drop acorns, to stick together, and to stick around. Because just as the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus Christ, friends, we know from what Jesus does and what he teaches us that the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. As well, That the Spirit coming upon all God's people is the great gift of the Messiah, according to Acts chapter 2. He has poured out the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus does in us, what He is continuing to do in us, is something that He then wants to begin to do through us in our world as well. So let me just close with, the, with an invitation this morning. We're going we're gonna to sing and then we're going to go into uh, celebrating communion together, remembering Jesus, remembering what He did to how He was broken so that we could be healed. And how His brokenness enters our life and fills us and energizes us to follow Him. Well, if you're here this morning and you're brokenhearted or you feel like you're broken-lifed, we have good news. That Jesus is the one who can heal you? If you're here this morning and you're working hard to get into the good life apart from Him, it's not going to work. Right? Seven billion failing humans can't all be wrong. right? It's, it's not going to work. If you're here this morning and you want to be inside of what God is doing, It is outside of the comforts and pleasures and promises of the world. It's where there used to be community, where there used to be worship and discipleship, and where, as we pray and work to unleash the gospel together here, we hope that maybe it'll grow once again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that the Spirit of the Lord is upon someone today. That the Spirit of the Lord God, the Sovereign King, is upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can go to Him where we want to directly and immediately interact with You. And see You work in our lives. And so, Lord Jesus, would You work in our lives? Would You pour out the Spirit of the Lord upon us through Your presence with us? And Lord, we're so thankful for the word here this morning that through Christ, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, can be comforted, can be bound up, can have our broken hearts restored. Lord, we need to hear that. Every one of us has broken hearts that you've healed, or that you're healing, or that you could heal. And so, Lord, would you show us your kindness? And heal us with your mercy and grace. And Lord, you call, us, you call us to come with you. You call us to come inside what you're doing. Inside the work of this great anointed king. To be these oaks of righteousness. And to do this work of restoration. And Lord, we have to confess that this is scary. This is intimidating. It's frustrating to think about all we have to do. And to think about following you as well. And so whatever it is that we need to let go of, whatever it is that we need to pick up, Lord, would you do that work in our hearts that we might might walk with Jesus, we might walk with this anointed one more closely because that's what we want. That's why we're here this morning, Lord. So Jesus, heal our hearts, set us free, turn our sorrows into joy, clothe us with this glory and this honor.